Welcome to Spiritual Insights with Charlotte Spicer. Spirituality and Metaphysics Talk Radio, featuring a course in miracles, dream interpretation, guided meditation, and the psychic and metaphysics free-for-all. It's your opportunity to consult with a professional psychic medium, discuss past lives, the chakras, and more. We are non-denominational, and there are no limits. Want to change your life? You must first change your mind. 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 No matter your religious structure, cultivate peace in your reality through self-awareness with an authentic spiritual teacher. And now, your host, Charlotte Spicer. Hello, and welcome to Spiritual Insights, everyone. I'm Charlotte Spicer, executive producer and host of the show, energetic healer and channel for Yeshua, also known as Jesus, and other members of the divine. Thank you so much for tuning in from the United States and around the world. Today, I'm joined by a special guest who is here today to talk about an extremely important topic, one that I don't often get a chance to explore on the show. My guest is Jill Nagel, a white, anti-racist, and interpersonal communication professional who runs workshops to help other white, anti-racists to take leadership around dismantling white supremacy mythology, starting with having conversations with other white people. She is a writer with over 150 publishing credits in various genres. Jill began her study of interpersonal communication at age eight when she read Haim Ginat's Between Parent and Child and attempted to teach her father how to talk to her. Since then, she has aimed her offerings at more receptive audiences. A longtime student and teacher of transformation and evolution, Jill's background includes untraining white liberal racism with Robert Horton, challenging white supremacy with Sharon Martinez, and multicultural alliance building with the National Coalition Building Institute. Jill founded Evolutionary Workplace. She coaches, counsels, and trains individuals, couples, and groups. Jill brings her creativity, strategic thinking, and gift of connection making to her coaching and consulting clients. Visit Jill's website at evolutionaryworkplace.com to allow her writing, personal appearances, and interviews with other anti-racist leaders inspire you to make a positive impact on racial inequality or to have her conduct a workshop in your place of business. Visit spiritualinsightsradio.com to learn about a new energetic healing session available, Building the Momentum for Success, a brief but thorough technique to help you reach your goals and recover from setbacks. Private sessions with Yeshua and the Divine Team are also available. If you would like to participate in one of my upcoming online private events, the Psychic and Metaphysics Free-for-All and the Holy Trinity Guided Meditation, visit the events page at the website for details and instructions. Well, I'm excited to get started, and I really want to have a conversation with this woman. Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here with me and my diverse audience to have this conversation. Thank you, Charlotte. I am delighted. So I just want to jump right in. What, what put you on this path? Have you, were you raised in a very anti-racist way, or did something happen where a light bulb went off and you said, no, this is wrong and I need to do something? Well, I would say that it definitely came up in my family, um, not in my immediate family so much as uh, my father's sister, Phyllis Nagel Washington, um, was a very active anti-racist. It started for her uh, at the age of 19 when in 1946, she integrated a segregated bus in South Florida that was on its way to New York. Um, She 
because she was from New York and one of five Jewish families in this all white town, she literally didn't see color. Uh, and she was on this bus. Um, and what she noticed was that a bunch of people were crowded in the back, just on, practically on top of one another, whereas the people in the front of the bus were kind of lounging and taking up two and three seats. And she didn't understand why that was. And so she started motioning to the people in the back of the bus, come, come sit up here, come where there's room. And this woman shook her head no and was terrified. And she pointed up. And so Phyllis looked up and she saw this sign that said colored seat from the rear, because that was very common back then. And yes. then she looked at the people in the back of the bus and she looked at the people in the front of the bus. And it was only at that moment that she noticed that everyone in the back of the bus had dark skin and everyone in the front of the bus had light skin. And that this sign was literally dividing these two populations based on the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. Well, she became enraged and she thought this won't do. And so she went up to each of the people, the white people who were kind of sprawled over two and three seats and said, oh, excuse me, ma'am, would you, could you consolidate your belongings, please? Ma Sir, do you mind picking up your newspaper from this? And she went to each of the people and asked them to free up the seats that they were taking up. And I don't know why they obeyed her, but if you know my Aunt Phyllis, she's quite a formidable figure, perhaps even at 19, they just didn't think to question. Here's this white lady telling them to, to scoot up, so they mm -hmm. did. And then one by one, she led the black people in the back of the bus by the hand said, here, I found a seat for you. And so one by one, she, she integrated the entire bus. She sat down, started to read her book and the bus drove off. Well, she didn't know it at the time, but the bus driver was fuming, getting madder and madder and madder. Finally, he pulled the bus over and he said, you, N-word lover, get off the bus. And she didn't know it. And then people were looking around, you know, and finally she realized that he was talking to her. I want to make a movie about this. <laughs> yeah. It would and make she a said, one. I um, paid my money to go to New York. I'm not getting off this bus. She sat back down and started reading her book. And the bus driver got so mad that he got off the bus. Oh. And left this now integrated bus full of black and white people together. And, um, what happened was that they started to get to know one another and pretty soon songs broke out then someone brought out food and so they're basically having a party on this bus people who never would have really talked to one another they shared pictures of their families and talked about where they were going and eventually another bus driver came along and didn't say a word got on the bus and just drove it um and there was, I mean, there was lots of bus activism, mainly black people standing up, you know, even before Rosa Parks and saying, no, mm -hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit in the substandard seat just because of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how many other white people actually stood up to this. But so, you know, when I was younger, I was intimidated by my Aunt Phyllis. Uh, and it was only when I got older and went away to college and came out as bisexual, came out kind of as a feminist, okay. like not came out, but like realized that the world was sexist and I didn't really want to um, couch out to those rules that I began to really appreciate Phyllis and become closer to her and develop a profound respect for, for what she did in the world. She, after that time, she, um, that summer, she read 125 books by black authors and as she put it, fell in love. She went on to get her PhD in English and start a black studies program 
No kidding. The local community college that she ran for 25 years until her death in 1995. Um, and all this, the whole time she said, if ever any black person wants to come along and take this over, I will gladly step aside. And no one ever did. So she kept running it. Okay. Now, at one point, this young black man stood up and said, basically, who, who the hell are you? I mean, you have an academic knowledge of black literature, but you have no idea what it's like to be black. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Fair enough." Yeah, she said, "You're right. Why don't? How about you come up here and talk about that?" And they wound up developing a partnership. And for four years, the two of them team taught. She would teach from the more academic side of things, and he would talk about the experiential reality of what it was like to be black. That sounds perfect, right? <laughs> and so she said, after four years, she felt like she did know more about what it was like to be black after. So she definitely influenced me. And, you know, in, in Judaism, um, there's not so much of an emphasis on the afterlife, heaven per se, as there is on when somebody dies. Uh, we, we think about their work in the world and how we can keep alive what was meaningful about their life. And mm-hmm. so I do feel like in some meaningful way, I'm carrying on Phyllis's work. That's beautiful. And I can just see this happening on this bus where this force just came up from within her and just said, oh, no, I'm not having this. And went about correcting it and said, "Okay, my work is done. I'm going to read my book now. Exactly. Only to find that this kicked off this transformation within her and took her in a totally. Probably unanticipated direction and the fuel just. The, the fire just kept being fueled and fueled. And it sounds like she just made an amazing contribution to her corner of the world, maybe, but she made an, an amazing contribution. And I know that that's what you're trying to do now. Well, so this is great. I, I hope, I hope to shake things up a bit. Good. Yeah. Let's see if we can help you do that. Well, I, my story is a little different. Um, there was no fireworks kind of moment in my household, despite domestic violence, harassment, neglect, abuse, you didn't say the N-word. You would get your teeth knocked out. Wow. You knew not to say it. Not that I was given to saying it, but it came up a couple times. And I grew up in the 70s in uh, South Philadelphia. And after a while, I noticed because I had a black uncle. My mom's sister favored people of color and her husband was black. And I was never really even comfortable saying black and white because for me, being a very sensitive person and an empath, I can feel the force behind it, the energy behind it. There's a negative connotation to saying a black person and it makes me uncomfortable. So I normally say persons of color or Caucasian, but I'm trying to get used to it. I'm trying to get over whatever energetic hang-up I have to smooth out conversations. One thing I noticed, you mentioned like the afterlife. Do you believe in reincarnation? Believe in. I think it's a really interesting angle on things. And I've seen some stories that really make me go, wow. Okay. Maybe this will make you go, wow. So one day I was in fifth grade. I was 11 years old sitting at my desk. And we start learning about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. 
And the pictures that were in our history books were like this lithograph. They were drawn of lines to create the image. And I looked at it and this chill went through my whole body. And I said, what is that about? And I took my left hand and I placed it over the picture. And the energy came up into my hand and just galvanized me. And from that moment, it's like, I just have such enormous respect and love for her. I think about her a lot. Fast forward 30 years, come to find out that I was an associate of hers in a past life while she was running the Underground Railroad. And finally, I had that sense of now it makes sense why I think about her so often. Because in that life, I worshipped the ground she walked on because of her courage and her resilience and her tenacity. She never gave up no matter what. And so for me, a person like me, a little nugget of information like that helps me understand myself. Like, why are you so fascinated by this um, drawing of someone? It wasn't even a photograph. It was a drawing, but just the name and the energy. It fits in with with my belief system. Mm -hmm. And it was like that in my school. There were no racial words to be said ever. We just didn't have it. And so I was kind of buffered from a lot of that tension, right? And if any, if I had any negative experiences as a child, I didn't paint a broad stroke and say, well, everybody's bad. It's just that I ran into a couple people who weren't so nice. So my education in this was pretty solid. Plus I'm, the fabric I'm cut from is everyone's a child of God and deserves equal respect and compassion. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's how it was for me. I have a multicultural family. The listeners know that. Uh, So I had my uncle Bernie. I have two nephews uh, through marriage and a biracial great nephew who is absolutely um, just such a special kid. But I want to so I wanted to throw that out there, kind of get an idea of like, so so why are we sitting here as as you put it two glow in the dark white people? (laughs) Why is this so important? I could show you a picture of me glowing in the sun i thought to send it to you to make you laugh maybe i still will because it's pretty comical um how pale i am but where do you where do you start when you when you go to hold a workshop suppose you go into a company where do you start because your topics are are very to the point such as how white people benefit from dismantling white supremacy why don't we start there and then i'll I'll, I'll tap in and, and see what questions I can ask to sure. further it along. So it's a very, um, it's a very broad topic that lends itself to kind of um, a lot of entry points mm-hmm. that have to do with where people are in their consciousness development. And, you know, when you, if you look around you see people at all different stages from overt white supremacists who are literally putting on hoods and going and burning crosses in people's lawns mm-hmm. to people who, la, 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 I can't, I don't see color. You're the problem. Don't talk to me about this. We may have to ban these books, you know, to um, people who just kind of step aside to people who are curious. Maybe some of the listeners are curious to people who are kind of like you and me, maybe you might say we're lifers. We're, we're really in this. We don't see any other way to live our lives and to be engaging these issues. Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll give one example of folks I would say who were in the curious to activist to lifer realm um, who want to make a difference. And 
they are more or less the ones who came to my white on white workshops that I gave for about, about a year and a half or so, um, a couple of years ago, starting a couple of years ago um, until recently. And those um, workshops were for people who, I think I started calling them the other white meat, like how to have <laughs> conversations. And then I changed it to um, something like conversation with the other white people. And what I'll just say a little bit about what prompted that. And then I'll tell you like what we actually did in those um, workshops. Okay. And how that relates to how white people benefit from dismantling white supremacy. Um, whenever some horrible you know, act happened like Dylan Roof, for example, um, yeah. shot this room full of black people. To a person, the white people in my circles were condemning him, calling him a monster, lock him up, all these things. And I totally understood that, totally understood why somebody would say that. And at the same time, um, I saw a dissociative quality or phenomenon happening. People were saying, using the example of somebody like Derek Chauvin, you know, who killed George Floyd to mm -hmm. the protests very loudly, the subtext being, I'm a good white person. I am not like them. And along with that was this very loud and public unfriending, you know, my high school friend, Susie is saying that, you know, this was okay that I never really piles on unfriend them, you know, this kind of <laughs> The separation of white people into we the good and they the bad. Okay. And, them. and I said, hang on a second. So I had this this moment that I talk about in, in the book where I was looking into the eyes of Dylan Roof's mugshot. And it looked to me just like my autism spectrum son's eyes right before he would have a violent tantrum. And I knew that dysregulated look and I went, whoa. Dylan Roof and I are part of the same system. It's just that he's the identified patient acting out this horror and I'm sitting here on the sidelines talking about it. But this is the same system. Make no mistake that we are both part of. And it was at that point that I began to coalesce this notion of a collective white psyche that we are all part of and we're acting out different parts. But by dissociating by some some white people dissociating from others, we are abdicating our an opportunity to use our white privilege to mm -hmm. truly reckon together as a group. And one of the ways that we can do that is instead of turning away from the conversations at Thanksgiving with Uncle Fred and you know Aunt Sally about how they don't see color and people who talk about racism are the problem because <laughs> they're perpetuating it we need to lean into those conversations absolutely and everybody was like no god no i don't oh, don't make me talk and i go hang on a second you know i'm fond of quoting asia davis of the human potential project and one of the co-conveners of the group uh, white people doing something on facebook woman of african descent who says you know when you white person do that one less racist in your life is not one less racist in my life and in doing that, she's alluding to this abdication of the opportunity to use our white privilege to have a transformative conversation. Because with my skin, with your skin, we can go places that Asia can't. We can say things and be heard in ways that people with darker skin cannot because they're seen as 
having a vested interest, God forbid, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> of, course, mm-hmm. of course, I have a vested interest in preserving my life and well-being. But, you know, we're already seen as members of this invisible white club and therefore have more of a platform to critique it and hold people's interests because we obviously aren't talking out of the same kind of interest, but we're, we're seen as being quote unquote more objective. So back to the question, how, um, how do we show up for this question? How do white people benefit from dismantling white supremacy? That's when I started holding these workshops, white on white conversations. And so people coming to these workshops were reluctant to have these conversations as they weren't gonna be fun. They didn't seem like they were gonna be fun. What, part of what makes them feel so hard is that and this is one of the things that came up in Robert Horton's um, Untraining White Liberal Racism class is that whenever we, you know, the way we do one thing is the way we do all things in some way. So mm-hmm. if we start to have a difficult conversation, it engages our core wounding. It engages all of the survival patterns we've ever used to get through anything difficult. And it can put us right back there, whether we were fleeing or fighting or um, fawning, you know, whatever patterns we use to survive, mm-hmm. and we get into a sticky, uncomfortable situation. And what's more sticky and uncomfortable than white supremacy? We can mm-hmm. be that five-year-old again. Who the hell wants to go there? Right. So that's where we start. We start with slowing down the interaction and paying really careful and loving attention to what comes up within us and taking care of that part. We don't get to do that in the moment in a, in a, you know, fast flowing conversation, but in these, in these workshops, we slow it way down. We attend to our breathing. We attend to our bodies. We attend to the stories that we're telling ourselves, whether the story is, oh, it's hopeless or, oh my God, I'm in danger or this person is a monster. Why should I even bother? Like we all have some story about what horrible thing is happening or is going to happen as we're engaging this. And usually they aren't true. And mm-hmm. we get a chance to slow all that down to notice, oh, wow, I'm actually really afraid of being hurt or I actually want to hurt this person or whatever, whatever it is that's happening and take it apart and be with it and lay down new neural pathways so that the next time we have an actual conversation, we're making choices. We're not just reacting. We're actually responding in a strategic way that we now have better access to because we've taken the part, dealt with some of the baggage, if you will, that comes up. I, I mean, baggage makes it sound negative, but it's just human, you know, being human. That baggage is fine. I'll take it. But I, I think <laughs> I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant because it, it can be and it should be an uncomfortable conversation because you're not going to get anywhere if it's all smooth. I could just see the people walking into that workshop, slithering to the back and taking a seat in the back of the room. You know what I mean? There's going to be some who do that because they don't know kind of how to conduct themselves. And then if they have these feelings of reaction, they don't know what to do with it. So to identify flight, fight or freeze as your reaction is probably the safest way to go. And when they feel that they either want to defend in a fight reaction or get away from it as fast as possible in a flight reaction, or if they can't express themselves in a freeze reaction. I feel something, I have an experience that I can draw upon, but I don't know how to say it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to make people mad at me, or I don't want to make myself look a certain way. Right. 
whether it's vulnerable or prejudiced, you know? Yeah. But that's a great way to start and then to come to the table and say, you're in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. We're, we're all the, safe. We're just going to talk. Yeah. And one of the things that um, we do in these two-hour workshops is a little sort of um, cheating trick, which is, you know, it can take a long time to get to a place where we can reliably access a feeling of true centeredness and groundedness in the face of a whole range of things that come at us. Um, I happen to be relatively good at it from years of practice, but mm-hmm. it's not something that gets taught. And um, I still get thrown off sometimes with something I don't expect. So one of the things that we do since probably in two hours, people aren't going to get through a lifetime of whatever it is they're carrying is we, we do a little trick. And that is that we put aside whatever our reaction is. We tilt our head and we frown and lean and say, huh, can you tell me more about that? And we practice doing that on top of whatever else may be going on so that if we can't manage to get centered and peaceful and grounded, we can still perform that thing, which is still very disarming. Because if somebody comes out all, you know, fists out and ready to tangle, they're usually expecting someone to call them a racist or to condemn them or to do whatever sort of woke liberal thing they think is going to happen. And so when somebody just asks them really tell me, huh, can you tell me more about your views? It can be very disarming. And it usually causes them to drop whatever defensive or offensive tactic they're using and actually engage and on a more human level. And then you bought yourself some time and you can kind of do your breathing or whatever else. I use that too. Yeah. Instead of making a statement, I ask a question and invite yeah. the delivery of more information. And it, you can see the person kind of calm down a bit, right? Yeah. Because they like have all these a- internal reactions. There's a beautiful set of just two questions that um, the white people doing something group uses to guide what people post there. And one question is, does it make somebody wrong? And if it does, don't post it. Post things that don't make somebody wrong. And number two is, does it move the conversation forward? Mm. And I love that because those two things really cut away like 90% of what you might want to say that wouldn't. They wouldn't do a lot of good. That would probably come out the wrong way, no matter how good your intentions were. You just have to be careful of how you yeah. express. Well, there's there's um, so many different um, questions that you have a list of questions. Um, starting at the beginning, uh, doesn't naming race perpetuate the problem? For me, I can see where that question comes from. But you have to say it and get comfortable with it before you can start sharing ideas and gaining a better understanding of what someone in a different race experiences and feels. There's no way we can know the fear that people of color feel getting behind the wheel of a car and pulling into traffic. There's no way we can. I can only understand it to the extent that I worry about my nephew when he's ready to start learning how to drive. And it, you know, so, so I, I get to be on the periphery of it so much but that's what we need to do is have these conversations and learn about the experiences to understand. Uh, my mother told me a, a few times about different reactions my aunt had being in an interracial couple when it was quote unquote illegal. That didn't start till much, much later to even make it legal. Um, 
But what do you what do you say to that about naming the race, perpetuating the problem or opening the door? Well, what I think is going on when people say you're the problem because you're bringing it up is what they're what the subtext of that is that what they're really saying is I feel uncomfortable and I don't know how to talk about this. Mm -hmm. So I try to keep that in mind um, that they the reason they're trying to silence me is because it feels extremely uncomfortable and they haven't figured out how to metabolize that. Um, but you know, a lot of the work I do is what I call a sort of drive-by interventions like online. Um, somebody, uh, for example, let's say like on LinkedIn, oftentimes a black person will post something very pro-black. And then I scan the comments for the inevitable white you know, reaction along those lines. Defensive reaction. Yeah, mostly, mostly it's men, sometimes it's women. Um, and I engage them, try to take some of the heat off um, that black people have enough, 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 enough already to do. And so what I'll say is something more, sometimes it's something more factual. Sometimes it's what makes you say that. Um, when I look around, I see these things. What about you? Try to engage them, you know, yeah. with the questions. Um, and so just, you know, back to the question you asked earlier, how does dismantling white supremacy benefit white people? In the, the workshops that I mentioned before, when we do the work of slowing down, paying attention to the stories, the sensations, the reactions that are rising inside of us as a way of having a more engaged, productive, transformative conversation with another white person, those skills are transferable. What we're doing in that work is we're we're untangling the way that white supremacy mythology braids with our own trauma, our own surus is the Yiddish word for pain and suffering. And that frees up greater intelligence, more choice, more peace of mind, more ability to connect. I've had people come back to me after those workshops and say, you know, um, I was able to have a better conversation with my, my sister or my husband or my son because this work is, you know, at its core, it's human work. Mm -hmm. You know, there is the, the specificity about white supremacy mythology. When we start unraveling, healing some of the stuff, um, we become more fully human. And I'm, I'm talking about, yeah, not just, not just people who are organizing their whole lives around hate, but quote unquote, liberal and progressive people who are putting down other white people, when we start to engage the connections between us and those quote unquote other white people, it can actually be quite healing. I can see where that's possible. But how do you talk to, or how do you recommend people talk to other people with racist views? Because I've run into my fair share, even when I was a kid, of people who would say something and, and I would address it immediately. And just say, yeah. don't talk that way around me. Mm -hmm. That's not that's not nice. It's not funny. And you're not going to do it. Um, within the past five years, I ended a friendship. Mm -hmm. Because it was a girl I was friends with in fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Very close to her. And that friendship was rekindled back in like 2009. Right. Mm -hmm. For eight years, we were fine. Then all of a sudden, I guess she felt she was safe. 
and took that cloak off and just started really saying what you really wanted to say. And I said, excuse me, you don't talk like that around me. You know, I have black family members. Like, mm-hmm. don't talk. What's the matter with you? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what you use to justify it. There is no justification and I'm not going to have it. And if mm-hmm. you keep doing it, eventually I had to say, you do it one more time and we're done. Mm-hmm. And she did it. And I said, no, I'm, I'm, I, if you can't grow up, if you can't get beyond whatever happened that makes you think and feel that way, then especially when you're friends with a spiritual counselor, you know, and someone who can do what I do, and you're not taking advantage of it to heal or, or grow or evolve from it, we can't be friends anymore. So I ended that friendship. But mm-hmm. so what, but, but anyway, what's your view on how to talk to people with racist views, you know, from your work and your expertise? Well, so first off, I want to say I totally understand wanting to do that. And it makes sense to me, especially with you know people in your family and somebody who you trusted, cared for, and thought, you know, you shared certain fundamental views with. Right. Um, I would say in short, to think of the possibility of getting curious and remembering the human underneath that. And, you know, like, how did you come to this point of view? And I realized that, you know, not everyone has the bandwidth to do this with everyone, especially I think the closer you are to someone in your life, the harder it can be to muster that kind of um, distance, if you will, or kind of equanimity in the face of that, because we're, our hearts might be breaking, mm-hmm. you know? And so I've joked, you know, sometimes with other white anti-racists about trading relatives. Like, will you talk to this relative of mine? I'll talk to this relative of yours. I don't have any baggage, you know, around your Aunt Faye because I didn't grow up with her. <laughs> Is that kind of like racist swap? You know how people swap <laughs> wives? Like, let's racist swap this weekend. <laughs> Who can you send over? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, and even calling other people racist, even though I have done it and probably will continue to do it. I really think that we're all part of the system. We're mm-hmm. all part, we're all swimming in white supremacy mythology. Some of us are treading water faster than others. Some of us are just completely soaked in it, but we're all in the mix. Um, and I want, I want us all to help each other out. And I, granted, I know this is a lot, I'm making it sound easy, but I, it's not. You know, when I have these conversations with people, I get triggered. I get, you know, I, I'm far from, I, I don't have this down is what I'm trying to say. So you're still on the path of, of learning. Oh my God, yes. You're going to learn something new every day. The, the, the more deeply you get involved, the more you're going to evolve, you know? I hope so. And I've, and I've done that. And I'm, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in the idea that racism started with white people, obviously. Mm-hmm. And even though that might've been hundreds of years ago, had nothing to do with me personally. And there's nothing that I can say in my life that I've done to contribute to it. The fact that we are white, that we are Caucasian, it's up to us to end it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I think what you're doing is so instrumental because first we have to talk to each other because mm-hmm. there are going to be people at varying levels of evolution or understanding and so to be able to talk to someone they feel safe with to share their feelings or their experiences is a good place to start but eventually we can cross that line and then start uh, 
sharing experiences and feelings and uh, healing with each mm -hmm. other across the racial divide. Yeah. But we have to end it. We have to get out front. And another thing I'm a firm believer in is that people of color are not looking for revenge. There are people out there who do the fear mongering. And they're afraid of being outnumbered and all this other nonsense. What people of color are looking for is equality. Mm -hmm. They're not looking to surpass, surpass anybody. They're looking to be equal and to just be on the same level as everybody else and get what we said, the same compassion and respect that a human being deserves just because they're a child of God. And it doesn't matter the race or the economic uh, position. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, white supremacy mythology hasn't allowed that. And, you know, there's the Tulsa massacre, there's Rosewood where black communities that were thriving were burned to the ground, you know? And yes. it only takes once or twice for that to happen. It has happened multiple times. Um, for a community to feel afraid to, to build something for fear it's going to be destroyed. Why do you, because the word jumps out at me, why do you call it mythology? Let's talk about the white supremacy uh, mythology. Let's let kind of hone in on me, that. Yeah, let me break that down because sometimes people will jump and say, what do you mean mythology? White supremacy in the United States is very real. It's and so systemic. What I mean, <laughs> right. Yes. And so what I mean by that is that the white supremacy notion is not true. White people are not superior to anybody. Um, there's the, the supremacy part also means, it, supremacy also means prevalence that, you know, white people's interests have artificially prevailed over everybody else's because we've taken them by force. Right. Third of those interests by force. Um, and even whiteness, you know, whiteness was invented for the purpose of oppression. So whiteness itself is a mythology. Mythology also means a set of, it means, the, it means the, the ideology that infuses the way a culture conducts itself. And sometimes, sometimes those mythologies have truth to them. And sometimes those mythologies are useful. I was just getting into a discussion with someone on LinkedIn about that multiple uses of mythology and how sometimes one woman was saying, you know, we need new mythologies and somebody else was saying, but no, no, we need the truth. What we need is, you know, to dismantle the mythologies and we need, we need truth. And um, the word mythology could be used in different ways. And for example, Wakanda is a mythological black culture that was developed in Black Panther, but it served a purpose of elevating black people of yes. images of royalty and, you know, powerful warriors, you know, mm -hmm. along those lines as well. And um, when I visited the Danish Resistance Museum in Denmark, um, which is a museum of Holocaust, Jewish Holocaust resistance, I um, asked the, the curator who, or the docent, whoever it was, who was giving us a tour about um, this story of the Danish king and how he apparently made all of the Danes wear Jewish star armbands so that the Jews could not be identified. And he said, well, unfortunately, that's actually not true. It didn't happen. I was crestfallen. <laughs> what do you mean? So, well, that was a story that was popularized in Leon Uris's book, Exodus. It was a fictional account of what the Danish king did. It wasn't actually true. And 
I realized two things. Number one, I was sad because I wanted it to be true. And number two, it was a beautiful mythology of solidarity. And we need those. We need those stories of solidarity, even if they're not true. Even if Wakanda doesn't exist, maybe some Black people need a Wakanda. Certainly the mythologies of, you know, white superheroes are not true. We don't have Batman and Superman and Robin and all the other white superheroes. Well, white people have created those essentially to elevate us out of our own mediocrity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I like the way you break that down. It is kind of good to have a myth that you can believe in to give you a kind of like, um, I use the word hope sparingly, mm-hmm. but in this case, I'll use it. But just, just to give people hope that, you know, people can come together, mm-hmm. you know, as, as, you know, many tragedies make happen. If people come together after a tragedy, we just have to make sure that we're getting together, keeping this topic on the front burner, not the back burner. Don't yeah. just wait for the next uh, tragic occurrence like Mr. Floyd um, or the Emmanuel Nine, as, as Dylan Roof was um, very effective in opening our eyes to that. So, so white supremacy mythology is the untrue notion of white superiority that is nonetheless reinforced by very real policies, practices, images, beliefs, attitudes that weave themselves through and through U.S. culture so completely and so thoroughly that we a lot of times can't even see it or feel it or smell. It just feels like how how normal life just is. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I would definitely agree. Speaking of how life just is, do you remember a girl named Tawana Broly? I do remember that name, but I don't remember the details. Can you refresh my memory? Yes. When I was a kid, I was around 12 years old, and something came on the news that a girl went missing. Mm-hmm. And for once, because even by then I had noticed most of the kids that went missing were blonde-haired, blue-eyed kids. Yep. Yep. It was a young, uh, pretty black girl, and her name was Tawana Brawley, and she was missing. And the, the city of Philadelphia, just the alarm went up. So the first thing we noticed was, wow, look at the amount of attention this is getting. That's good. But they found her the next day. And when they found her, she had been beaten up and the N-word had been written on her torso in excrement. Hmm. And I was worried about her because, to be honest with you, when I saw her picture, she seemed like somebody I could be friends with. But she was a 12-year-old girl like me, out alone at night. Who knows what's happening to her? So I was afraid for her. So when they found her and they found her in this condition, I started to cry. Come to find out, it was all made up. Mm -hmm. It turned out she missed her curfew. And this is what she did to avoid getting into trouble for having missed her curfew. Mm -hmm. And where some people were outraged, my first thought was, but white people made it so easy for her to do that. That Mm -hmm. that's the way it is where it's definitely, I'm thankful it didn't happen to her, but it could have happened to her because that's what happens to people. That is the reality of how bad racism is in at least the United States. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And so she's all grown up a beautiful woman and, and all that. But that really hit me hard. Yeah. You can't blame a child for taking advantage of reality to get themselves out of a jam. You can't. Yeah. I hear you. How do you feel about when it's time, like suppose you're having, suppose you get somebody engaged in a conversation and you ask those questions and you get them to open up and share. What do you do when you reach the point where you realize that person has such an opposite position and, and, and it can't be changed that no, this is the way it is. I hear what you're saying, but this is the way it is. When do you give up on that person? I don't give up. I might ask something. I, I, I will keep going until I find a wall. And I, I, I might say to somebody, um, how did you come to believe that? Mm-hmm. And what, what did you, how did you learn? And if they, if their hat will start to go up, I'll say something like, are you feeling defensive? What's, or what's happening right now with you? Mm-hmm. But I, I can usually figure out a way to keep going as long as they're willing. Okay. But here's another thing I wanted to run by you. This is how excited I was to talk to you about this. So they want to enhance the way history is taught in schools. And there's this big backlash that is just so ridiculous. But something was said where I I said, okay, well, it could kind of happen that way. But there has to be a way, especially in the world of academia, to to figure out how to mold and, and teach children appropriately. But the comment was about teaching the truth of history mm-hmm. and how it played out for people of color is making white kids feel guilty for being white. Mm-hmm. In my mind, I can't see a teacher intentionally doing that, but I can see a kid feeling that way, if, especially if they harbor it and don't talk about it so that people can say, we're not doing this to make you feel guilty. You just need to know the truth. What have you run into in your work, your workshops, or with your associates about that? Well, so I um, kind of have the meta conversation a lot about the mindsets and the emotions produced by white supremacy mythology. And for example, one of the ways that, you know, as humans, we generally care about our impact on other people. For example, if we were in a crowded bus and I had a cast on my foot and the bus lurched and you accidentally stomped on my foot, you'd probably say, Jill, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Can I help you sit down? Can I get you some ice? Because you care about your impact on me, even if you didn't need to do it. Um, However, that natural impulse to right a wrong, when we're born into a culture that confers this unearned privilege on us, at the sometimes fatal expense of others, we have no recourse. We can't turn around and say, here, let me, let me help you out of white supremacy because it's much bigger and more complex than any one person can rectify. So we're stuck with this nowhere to go and that produces a kind of, um, kind of neurosis, if you will, I call the mindset that we have to do something with. So, and plus add to that all of the class issues, you know, the, um, what I call the broken promise of whiteness that poor and working class people are grappling with, like those policies, as Jonathan Metzl showed in his book, uh, Dying for Whiteness, they actually resulted in 
greater gun violence, higher suicide rates, more alcoholism, higher high school dropout rates. Um, people's, the, the promise of whiteness is being broken right and left. It's not conferring anything really good <laughs> to the people who we're cleaving to at the hardest, like, well, I don't know about the hardest, but the, the poor and working class whites are not getting a lot out of whiteness per se, except perhaps uh, a sense of belonging that's tied, that's braided with trauma. Yeah, um, I, I'm glad you came up with it because I was grappling for for a word to fill in there. And it and I don't know what they were, but yeah, the way you put it is, is perfect, but you make a good point. And um, I'm gonna circle back to um, what I shared with you before we started the show is that a lot of these structures are coming down. They're crumbling. Yes. Pa patriarchy is coming down. Yeah. And we're coming so into we, an age. Mm -hmm. Can I can I stop you from because I wanted to say one more thing about that but before we go into the crumbling. Um, sure. <laughs> like how do you I think it's really important to help children understand in ways that are appropriate for children what we're dealing with. And I was really struck a number of years ago, I think it was 1990, and I was actually in Philadelphia um, working at the Smiley Times building. I think it's, that's in, I can't remember what part of Philly it's in. But I was working at the Jewish Employment and Vocational Services as a volunteer coordinator for newly emigrated Soviet Jews, meaning I was coordinating U.S. volunteers to help newly emigrated Soviet Jews. And we went on a mission to a sister organization called the uh, Jewish Family and Children's Services. And there was a woman there, I don't remember her name, and she was talking about US history to some newly emigrated Soviet Jews. And she was talking about slavery. And she said, I'll never forget it. She said, this is a time in our history of which we are not proud. And then she repeated it. This is a time in our history of which we are not proud. And it was so basic and it was so matter of fact I mean, everyone has done something in their life of which they are not proud. And to just be able to name it like that. Yeah, we did some shitty things and we're not proud of that. Not we're terrible people. Not, you know, we ought to feel guilty for the rest of our lives, but we're not proud of this. And now what can we learn from that? How can we pick up the pieces? How can we make it better? How can we rectify the harm? Um, I think when people talk about white people feeling guilty, guilt is kind of a static emotion, but you know, grief is dynamic. We have a lot of reckoning and a lot of grieving to do. And if we can engage dynamically with those feelings, um, that's a big if, because mostly we don't learn how to work with our own feelings. But I think it's, it's beneficial to us, not just in terms of dismantling white supremacy, but as human beings, to be able to make space, just to feel our feelings, feel our discomfort, feel our grief, feel our rage, feel feel our just ah, you know. <laughs> I agree. I don't Absolutely. Like this. Well said. Well said. My goodness. So, so what's next? Crumbling. We're, we're oh yes. Crumbling. Yes, the, the the crumbling. So this is what we talk about on the show, and then we have. Uh, ascended beings who come on and share and they're talking about uh, structures crumbling, patriarchy, yeah. organized religion. A lot of these structures that have held all of us in place uh, to some extent or another. And uh, equality is featured in this big shift on the planet of gender mm -hmm. equality, racial equality, and um, 
quality and earnings, that kind of thing. And I'm looking forward to seeing that as it develops. But just to say that I think what you're doing is a major contribution to that, because I think you are opening eyes and ears, and that's what has to happen first. Mm-hmm. You know, don't you can't say you don't see color if, if you're not blind. Of course, I see it. I don't react to it in a negative way. I appreciate it. You know, I can appreciate beauty. But there's what Jake, Jane Elliott, so you remember Jane Elliott? I know the name. She did the brown eyes, blue eyes experiment with children. I think it was in the 60s. Um, and I, she's still alive today. And one of the questions she asked always, always just strikes to the heart of it for me. She says to a, a group of people that includes a lot of white people, she said, white people, I want you to stand up right now. Stand up if you would be willing to trade places and be treated the way that black people are treated in this culture. Yeah, I remember where this is going, but keep going, yeah. If you're not standing up, then you do see color. Mm Mm-hmm, absolutely. Wasn't there an experiment too, I forget what show it was on, where people with brown eyes were asked to get up and go to the other side of the room and were separated from the blue-eyed people? That's the experiment that she is famous for doing. That's in, the one she um, did? With elementary school kids. Yeah, I think yeah. she actually got trouble for that. And, and said that didn't feel too good, did it? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Wow, how to drive a point home. Well, see, and that's the kind of thing that I think he can do with children. You know, you can help them understand what it feels like to be in an in-group and in an out-group. And there are, there are child-appropriate ways to teach all kinds of things. Absolutely. And children are born compassionate and loving. And that's what you build on, you know. And, and you help um, them yeah, develop the muscles to stand up for injustice. And, you know, the, the, a lot of the, um, the objections to teaching about race invoke Christianity, but there's a lot in Christianity that is really applicable to anti-racism. How, you know, bring that together for a minute. Well, so um, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you that, that all of God's children are created equal. Mm -hmm. Um, Invite the stranger into your house. What you do for the least of these you do for me. Mm kindness, love thy neighbor as thyself. There's so much in Christianity and really at the core of most, not just religions, but also um, secular humanism, new age spirituality, people who say that they're spiritual, not religious, um, Judaism. That's all of us here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I gave up on Catholicism as a child because I kept getting in trouble for pointing out the contradictions in what they would teach the children. Mm-hmm. Can you give me an I, example? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the, one of the worst ones was they were telling the children, the, and we're talking six and seven year olds, how uh, Mary Magdalene was a bad person, and something got a, a hold of me, and I shouted, "No, she wasn't. That was Jesus's wife." Not even <laughs> sure I knew what a wife was at the time. You know what I mean? Huh, yeah, and yeah. It, it was Charlotte go to Mother Superior, and I'm walking down the hall. And I was like, "Why do they call her <laughs> Mother Superior? I know who my Mother Superior is." I know who my father is, you know, that kind of thing. And you call humans father and stuff like that. And luckily my father lost his job and my family couldn't afford the tuition for Catholic school. So I transferred Ah. to public school, but I got to know mother superior quite well. And she finally said, Charlotte, here's the deal. 
the truth is you're just not like other kids. And mm-hmm. a lot of these stories in the Bible are taught so that we can teach children how to behave. But I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say that you already know, right oh, from wrong. Wow. And Glad all I'm going to ask her. you to do, um, I was very grateful because what she said, that, when she said that, it didn't make me feel singled out or excluded. It made me feel understood. Somebody oh, sees good. through me and yeah. gets me. You're just not like other kids. This is something that I already knew. Yeah. But how do you ask about that with, you know, the skills of a child? And she right. asked you, she, she, she made a deal with me and said, do me a favor when sister's teaching or telling a story, please don't interrupt her. And if you have any questions, you come and ask me. My door is always open. Oh, I'm so glad that you had that experience. I, said, I can do right? that. After that, at the end of the day, I'd be heading towards the door and the nun would stand near the desk look at me and wink and in my pocket would be like a muffin wrapped in paper towels as a gift like wink like you did good kid you didn't interrupt you didn't contradict and you didn't expose me (laughs) because a lot of it simply isn't true she was his wife you know um mary was not a virgin i have the i have the blessed mother on my show for crying out loud she'll say it herself a lot of these things were about control uh, controlling the populace, uh, control on so many levels, uh, sexually, yeah. financially, morally, all that stuff. But, you know, to my point of what's crumbling, a lot of that is what's coming down. Right. You know? And I think um, it's um, it's disconcerting, you know, for people to kind of be between the bulwarks, you know, that one thing's crumbling, they don't have something to hold on to. And so these skills of what I call being with being withness, like being being able to be with another person as they're plotting, you know, the <laughs> Yiddish mm-hmm. word for sort of decompensating. I like, love Yiddish words. With that. <laughs> right. I know they're kind of automatopoeic, right? Um, like these skills, like there's a saying that goes, we're all just walking each other home. And I love that. It really speaks to my heart. I mean, if we can show up for each other while we shed the thing that's crumbling and come into the new realization maybe we'll get somewhere before the planet is destroyed that's a that's a great way to say it because we've uh, as a as a humanity you know as as a race as a human race not just uh, a race made up of different races what we've done to this planet is uh, pretty devastating and we're we're facing the consequences of that now. Yeah. If we can swing that over, let's look at the consequences of thinking in terms of superiority and inferiority and yeah. do what we can to to crush that, level it out, heal from it and build a better world. Yeah. As we yeah. clean up the planet. I, mean, I think we're capable of it. I like to think so. I want to tell you how much I appreciate you um, getting in touch and asking to have this conversation. I've thoroughly oh. enjoyed this. And Me I too. want to tell the listeners, I'm, I'm glad, Jill. I want to tell the listeners that evolutionaryworkplace.com is your website. Please go and explore everything she has on the website and look into having her come into your institution, workplace, uh, house of worship, whatever you have to, to, initiate the conversation and perhaps 
provide people with the skills to keep the conversation going to an effective point of healing. All right, all the best to you, Jill. Thank you so much. Thank you, Charlotte. You're very welcome. To everyone, thank you so much for tuning into this. Um, might, might not be the most comfortable conversation for me either, but I'm glad I had it. Well, that's our show for today, everyone. I am really glad um, because it, it needs to be had. And um, it's something I think about every day because, mm. it's, because I see it every day, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's our show for today, everyone. Until next time, God bless and be at peace.